Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of the Latin American Studies channel. I'm your host, Minnie Sawney, and I'm a professor of Hispanic Studies at the University of Delhi in India. Today, we're going to be talking about a book by Viviana McManus titled Disruptive Archives, Feminist Memories of Resistance in Latin America's Dirty Wars, which was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2020. It has just received honorable mention for the 2021 Gloria and Saldua Book Prize, the National Women's Studies Association awards the prize for groundbreaking scholarship in women's studies that makes significant multicultural feminist contributions to women of color transnational scholarship. Viviana McManus is at the Department of Spanish and French Studies, Occidental College in Los Angeles. Her current research focuses, and I quote her, on feminist uses of horror in contending with gender, state, and racialized violence in Latin American film and literature. End of quote. I highly recommend to all our listeners this very moving book. So Viviana, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Before we begin, I have to say that though I specialize in Mexico, I found your book to be wounding in the way it throws light on the many women activists who survived the years of repression in Argentina and Mexico and who have been relegated to the category of the unseen or are portrayed as underlings to the men who they fought alongside with. But first, to begin, do tell us about yourself and your trajectory thus far, your background in education. Okay. Uh, thank you so much <clears throat> for the opportunity to to come here and, and on this podcast and talk about my book. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, just a little bit about myself. I uh, was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, um, to a Mexican immigrant father and a, a mother Chicana uh, LA native as well. So I think a lot of my own family history, um, particularly this tradition of storytelling in my family, uh, is what really inspired and shaped my personal and, and as well as professional interests and, and trajectory. So I, you know, I'm a Latina who comes from a very family uh, pioneer Latina women in LA with deep connections to the Mexican immigrant community. And so I really became invested in this kind of construction of uh, feminist archives. Um, and this was a notion that I think was really indirectly um 
uh, kind of inspired by my grandmother and great grandmother who emigrated from Zacatecas, Mexico. Uh, to Los Angeles in the 1920s. And, you know, growing up, we would hear stories of, you know, um, surviving poverty, of, of gender discrimination, of sexism, classism, racism. Um, and most importantly, to me was sort of stories of US imperialism in Latin America. Um, so I really became uh, fascinated with this power of the literary and oral forms of storytelling and how storytelling um, is a form of, of Latin American feminist resistance to particularly uh, dominant or male-centered Eurocentric forms of knowledge. And so this was really kind of really influential in my in my uh, career choice. So I ended up majoring in English and Spanish as an undergraduate at Occidental College. And with the wonderful mentors there, I decided to uh, I got my Ph.D. in literature in 2011 from the University of California, San Diego, uh, with an emphasis on Latin American cultural studies and feminist theory and gender studies. Um, and towards the end of my graduate studies at San Diego, I had this amazing experience to um, where I was a graduate researcher for the university, UC San Diego Spanish Civil War um, memory project. And this was an audiovisual archive of survivors of the Franco dictatorships. We, we were trained in um, oral history methodology to interview um, and audio record um, as the survivors of the of the of the Franco dictatorship, and so this really inspired me to pursue this similar type of methodology in my own research, uh, particularly focusing on the question of gender and women survivors of Latin American state terror. And so this became really the the foundation of my of my book, um, and so. <clears throat> I was able to um, continue this important work um, as, a, as a postdoctoral fellow for faculty diversity at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, where I worked at the in the Women and Gender Studies Department for, for several years. Um, and then I returned back to Los Angeles to, to work at Occidental College, where I'm now um, an assistant professor of Spanish. So really, my research projects have emerged out of this really deep personal interest in historical memory projects um, and examining the role literary and cultural studies play in tracing memories of loss, injustice, state-sponsored oblivion, and gendered histories of, of terror and survival. So this is what really truly inspired me to, to um, examine the storytelling as this type of Latin American feminist resistance. Um, and this really serves as the narrative arc of many of, of my research projects. Thank you. Uh, you've given us a gist of most of your work. Now, in detail, we'll talk about, we'll unpack some of the things that you've said. Now, explain to us the title of your book, Disruptive Archives. What are its core arguments in the book and what did you hope to achieve while writing it? Thank you. Um, I don't know, as you know, sometimes titles for books are <laughs> uh, one of the hardest things to come up with. But um, the title of my book really uh, turns to the the memory projects of, of women survivors of um, Latin America's dirty wars, and particularly the, the resistance efforts against legacy of state trauma and violence. So um, 
at its core, disruptive archives really centers on this power of storytelling that I, I that is found in these uh, disruptive archives of women involved in armed as well as unarmed movements during the so-called dirty wars of Mexico and Argentina from about 1960 to 1980s. Uh, so the women's nar- narratives of survival uh, are what I call disruptive archives. Right. So these serve as archival sources that really challenge dominant or hegemonic forms of knowledge on the dirty war era here. And so these narratives are are, um, addressing the gendered erasure of dirty war historiography. So in in this process of constructing the disruptive archive, women are able to transform dehumanizing uh, violent memories of repression and trauma into historical memory projects that seek justice for for crimes of the state. Um, So disruptive archives can um, invoke knowledge from firsthand accounts. So in the book, I examine oral histories, documentary film, testimonial literature, and disruptive archives can also refer to literary imaginings in the book. So I look at fiction and narrative film. And so these are the kinds of these are the sources that I term that are, are disruptive archival sources to empirical findings on the dirty war. Um, and so th- this is kind of the way to um, examine the the state's uh, erasure of women's activism in order to pursue neoliberal closure of moving beyond the past of the violence of the past, as well as um, the overlooking of women's participation in leftist revolutionary collective memory um, and the kind of critical role women played in, in those movements, which I'll, I'll get into, I'm sure, a little bit later. Um, but it is, I think, also important for me to note, um, is that one of the elements of my book is that it's, it's not, um, these disruptive archives that I look at are not really, recover, uh, really focused on solely recovering empirical data found in their in their narratives uh, or feeling the kind of gaps or erasures of male-centered histories. So uh, what I mean by that is like in, in one in one sense, yes, these oral histories and cultural texts um, that the women narrate give really important historical context that has been erased by these dominant narratives. But what I find really fascinating in the book is how the uncut, unrecoverable nature of loss and um, organized forms of gender violence influence how the women articulate these histories. So um, the book really considers how the disruptive archives relay transformative possibilities of trauma and solidarity as they sort of rewrite these dominant narratives um, to push against the active forgetting or this term olvido um, of women's histories of resistance. So in that way, uh, they really push against a more linear dominant um, narrative that was that's more forward-looking, a kind of neoliberal model that is that sees the past as firmly in the past unresolved. Um, so this was really intriguing to me, this sort of hemispheric pattern in remembering, retelling, and reframing these histories of state-sponsored violence. Um, Another element that I think is really important of my um, of my book project is the parallel forms of gender state violence um, 
that occurred transnationally. Um, so I look at the violence that was committed during the Dirty War era, uh, during the authoritarian um, era of Mexico's pre-government during the 60s and 70s, as well as the violence, uh, gendered and state violence uh, sanctioned by the Southern um, Argentina's military dictatorship. Um, and I do this because I think it's really important to bring into conversation um, and, and highlight Mexico's own more secretive dirty war. Uh, there's, as we, as a lot of you know, there's you know quite a large body of scholarship produced on Argentina's dictatorship, the process for national reorganization, right from 1976 to 83, uh, and particularly the feminist research done on this era of terror, you know, by scholars like Diana Taylor, Barbara Sutton, just to name a few pathbreaking scholars who who really focus on this. And there is a growing interest of a body of work and scholarship being done on Mexico's own dirty war. Um, but as I focus on in my book, it is lesser known, right? But it is worth mentioning that there is some wonderful work done by historians such as Fernando Calderón, Adela Cerillo, Alexandra Viña, really shaping the field in Mexican studies by unearthing this um, era of Mexican, contemporary Mexican history. Uh, so my book is really... Um, one of the, of the elements is to bring these two um, histories together uh, in order to make hemispheric links between the gendered nature of violence instituted in um, nominally democratic states such as Mexico, as well as the military fascist regimes um, instituted in, in, in places like Argentina. Um, so this is really important to make these transnational hemispheric links because oftentimes Mexico is not really seen in the same, uh, studied alongside Argentina and vice versa. So in that way, I, I think with the backdrop of the Cold War era um, and the normalization of gender and state violence in these regions, it is a really important link that um, my book makes. And so um, one of the main takeaways that I think that I see come out of this text as well is how the women in the in the text really situate themselves as agents of social social change right and and really as active producers of knowledge on this on this history of the dirty war um, one of the really critical things that I think um, that I that I really loved about the book is the oral histories um, and just you know it's impossible to cover that in, in the interview but I think one of the main kind of guiding forces as I was writing the book, you know, writing a book is very <laughs> arduous at times and, and frustrating, but I would always come back to the interviews and they would really serve as a source of um, inspiration for me. Um, and I think their, their willingness to talk to me and wanting to get their stories out is so important. And I think just, just writing their, um, including their interviews <clears throat> in this text is one of the most important things for, for me and, and the sort of project itself. Um, and just to relay this in, this kind of knowledge that we can get from their, um, their testimonies, right? So the book really asks us to think about the theory and knowledge that the women express themselves in their histories of survival and resistance to state terror, as well as what kind of theory and knowledge we can get from the cultural narratives themselves. Now, you mentioned in the introduction that the women you wanted to interview started talking and communicating a bit more when they heard about your own family history. Tell us about how these women felt comfortable after they realized they were historical selves and that their histories would find an echo in your own. 
That's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, this this was a, a really fascinating um, topic for me. I think that um, for those those of us and folks who have worked with um, ethnographies or oral histories in their research have come across this um, topic of, of how, how to connect or the connection or transference, right? Modes of, modes of connection between um, interviewer and interviewee. And I think um, particularly interviewing survivors of trauma and state violence, um, you have to really approach the topic very carefully, right? And, and with a lot of respect. And for me, it was really important to center the person I was interviewing. Um, so a lot of the training I received in the Spanish Civil War project was to follow an interview methodology that focused on a kind of open format. And this allowed the person being interviewed to really speak freely and openly about their lived experiences. Um, but of course, sometimes, uh, particularly with these topics of, of gender violence, of, of state violence, trauma, um, despite many of them having given their interviews and testimonies many times, there could still be a, a sort of initial um, distance, right? I'm a virtual stranger. <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I have um, connections to these folks, but, um, you know, I, I am essentially a, a stranger asking them about very personal um, harrowing details that they experience in their lives. So, um, uh, I think also one of the interesting elements was that, you know, as an American researcher, as a Yankee, um, to many of these women, there was sometimes, not often, but a couple of times where there was a little bit of mistrust, right, as, as that was very understandable. Um, so one, I think one of the interviews I mentioned with a, a former guer guerrilla Alejandra in Guadalajara, Mexico, she joked that, you know, oh, I must be from the CIA because I'm an American. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was, it was a funny kind of moment of banter and, and joking. But I think there, this also points to a kind of um, important uh, moment of, of, positionality, right? As an American interviewing, coming to Latin America and interviewing folks there um, that also reveal the histories of U.S. imperialism and intervention in Latin America, this sort of distrust of, of, of U.S. Um, um, presence in Latin America, which I completely understood. So when I mentioned my family's connection to Latin America, um, that my father's from, from Mexico, my, my, you know, mostly Mexican and Cuban family, um, there was a sense of a, a bit of a softening. And um, for all of the women I interviewed, they really loved to hear about <clears throat> my um, particularly my Cuban grandfather, uh, my mother's father, who was um, a member of the Communist Party in Los Angeles, right? So most of the women I interviewed, almost all of them were, were and continue to be in um, communist or socialist organizations. And so um, by kind of revealing this part of my family history, right, and my own, my own political affiliations, um, I think that's really intrigued them. And this also established kind of a, a moment of transference and connection and, and camaraderie between us. 
that I think was really essential to sort of create a um, context of of a more relaxed atmosphere, um, a, a moment of transference, and open open the line of communication. Um, and I think that I would I would mention that a lot of the stories my my immigrant crown parents would mention uh, really resisted this myth of meritocracy that we see in the U.S., right, that we really relied more on communities of support and uplift, um, more sort of bent on sort of socialist ideologies, right, being very critical of the U.S. government and supporting, condoning state terror in places like Argentina and Mexico. So I think my interviewees of course, try not to dominate the interview, right? Because I'm there to, to hear them. But hearing a little bit about me and the reasons why I wanted to learn about their stories really kind of um, established this important connection with uh, with the woman, women I interviewed. And this really falls in line with a critical element of the book project, which is what I call the uh, focus on the embodied forms of knowledge that are produced in oral histories, right? So the moments of, of banter, right? The, the joking of Alejandra that say, oh, you must be from the CIA, um, like the caresses and the, you know, inviting me into their kitchen and cooking for me and sitting me down at their, their tables and showing me pictures of their grandchildren, right? This is all part of the kind of power of the archive in this sense of, that requires presence from the interviewer, right? This kind of dialogic relationship um, that is formed with both interviewer and interviewee um, participating in this formation of knowledge. Uh, now, how have human rights texts and a masculinist left accounts of dictatorship made women's struggles invisible. Explain to us how they've remained silent on certain issues that have helped post-dictatorship regimes who, who have a vested interest in brushing uncomfortable truths under the carpet. Um, yes. So one really important focus of my book is examining the incapacity of both um, male-centered radical movements as well as state-centered human rights regimes uh, representation of this era to really fully account for the gendered violence of that era. Um, And so we're not able to really critique contemporary state regimes as well as their connections to past regimes. Um, So my book, in contrast, really centers these historical memory projects and the memory work of women activists, um, which allows for more of the contradictory heterogeneous narratives of the era, right? So the narratives that really, really speak to the un- unrecoverable and unspeakable losses of erasure and, and, and trauma. Um, in, in regards to the human rights text that I look at, especially in my first chapter, um, I examine really the possibilities as well as the limits that we see when the state is the guarantor of human rights, right? So one of the main overarching criticisms that I came across with with women I interviewed and activists and human rights activists was that the state was the the state was really the one committing right and condoning this violence. And yet now it is the state that is in charge of controlling the human rights narrative, right? So this was one of the main um criticisms, right, of of the state being in charge uh, of having the control. Um, However, you know, there are some really important 
elements to focus on in in terms of the transitional justice moments. Um, these moments in the post dirty war era were uh, these human rights reports were really pivotal in documenting the atrocities committed by the state. Right, so this was paving the way for survivors, particularly women survivors, to archive officially their narratives of political activism and resistance to state violence. Violence. So it was an important avenue for um, survivors to be able to actually document for the first time what happened. Um, it also, bring, these texts really bring international awareness as well as a platform for their cause, right? So after many years of being silenced uh, by the state, right? And in the case with Mexico, there was even more years of, of silence, right? So this was another form of, of trauma, right? The, the denial and erasure of what happened during the dirty war was sort of another level of trauma. Um, and, and as well as the criminalization of, of, of um, survivors, of activists at the time, they were portrayed as subversives, as terrorists who deserved the violence. So this was a really important um, accomplishment, right? These, these human rights reports were actually um, documenting, right? Officially recognizing uh, and legitimizing their experiences. Um, in terms of some of the kind of drawbacks of these texts, uh, we see that um, oftentimes as transitional states, transitional justice states want a swift return to democracy, right? Especially in the case of Argentina, um, this transitional government occurred right at the end of the dictatorship in 1983, 1984. And so the, the transitional government really relied on a universal, apolitical victim of human rights abuse, right? This kind of discourse. Um, and so this would t this tended to portray women activists um, as apolitical, as passive, as needing rescue. So there's a sort of protectionist and patriarchal lens that was used in some of these human rights reports that rendered the women particularly in need of rescuing and protecting. Um, and there's one example from the Argenti Argentinian Nunca Mas, uh, Never Again, Human Rights Report of 1984. This was a text produced by the National Commission on the Disappearance of Persons, right? The transitional government after, dictator after the dictatorship ended. Um, one interview I found really interesting was by a survivor, Adriana Calvo, who was pregnant at the time of her ab abduction. In the Human Rights Report, Nunca Mas, her testimony is included under the victims chapter and the subsection, which is called Children and Pregnant Women Who Disappeared. And this part of her testimony really centers on more the degradation of her pregnant body as an evidence of, you know, one of the most helpless kinds of victims of the dictatorship. Um, and another text I look at that has her same testimony, uh, it really focuses more on the causality, you know, why she and others were targeted by the dictatorship. And she goes into depth um, that she was a union organizer at a university. And so that this political activism really threatened the gendered heteropatriarchal uh, makeup of the dictatorship. So really what I, what I look at and examine in my book is in this chapter is, you know, what is missing in many state sponsored human rights reports is the lack of causality, you know, why these egregious violations of human rights uh, occurred, um, as well as a kind of um, gendered heteropatriarchal lens used to portray women as apolitical or without political subjectivity and, and in need of rescue. 
Um, and that was sort of a, an important distinction that I think um, was being made. And that was more in the case of Argentina. With the case of Mexico, um, there was a huge gap between the end of the Dirty War era and the transitional government. So the main difference between Argentina and Mexico, there was a many more years of impunity and silence, right? The Mexican government denied uh, um, what really happened in the Dirty War era until former President Vicente Fox was elected in 2001. And one of his promises was to investigate human rights crimes in recent history. So, um, you know, this was a really important first step for Mexico, but as uh, different from Argentina in that there were many more years of impunity, silence, cover up, um, and complete denial of what happened. Uh, so this was really important first step to officially have this first official government response to, to what happened in the Dirty War era and the crimes committed by the state. But similar to Nunca Mas, the report also relied on a very paternalistic, protectionist narrative when framing women's testimonies in the report. Right? So they, there was a centering on women as victims of the state and that the state really neglected to protect women's honor and virtue. Um, so it really doesn't move beyond the dirty war era logic or gender logic of women falling into very specific gendered roles, right? That women needing to be saved, as docile. Um, and, and so I really, and, and so in this case, um, I argue that the framing of women's testimonies and surviving of gender sexual violence really reflects the authoritative power of the, the government and also the paternal transitional government in Mexico. So in that way, um, there is a shift of, of regime, right? Regime change, but there's also a very similar kind of um, emphasis on women being helpless uh, victims of, of despotic, um, you know, uh, terror and, and state power. Um, in the case of the leftist organizations, um, broadly speaking, and this doesn't mean all of them, but there was a tendency for the male leaders of the movement to be the spokespeople of the of the historical memory projects. Um, one of the reasons this happened is that there was an, a really important attempt to regain control of the narrative, right, of what happened. Because one of the intents of the state was to, and they were really successful, is was uh, creating a, a narrative of criminalization. So they criminalized this history of socialist revolutionary struggle during the 70s. Um, uh, and so survivors and former members and activists of the of these leftist organizations, you know, said, okay, we need to create a cohesive, non-critical account right, of, of the movement because it was already so demonized and criminalized by the state, right? So there was an intent to really focus on creating a cohesive, um, linear account of what happened um, to really challenge the state's disavowal of past, of past violence, right? So it was really important for them to create a, a linear and contained narrative. Um, so there was very little focus on like criticism or flaws or limitations of the, of the organizations themselves because they wanted to maintain a sort of cohesive narrative. Um, so in this case, I, I, I center on how there was a silencing that occurs, right? Because this narrative that they're constructing is mostly a masculinist historical perspective of the dirty war. Um, you know, there's often a dominant representation of the masculine subject of the hombre nuevo, right? The new man of the romanticized revolutionary male political militant 
Um, and this is something that Jean, the scholar Jean Franco calls the masculine ethos of socialist movements in Latin America. And this can really overlook the very active, integral role women played in these revolutionary movements, right? So there was this tendency to um, kind of move veer away from those sort of gen- gender dynamics that occurred. And another thing that was really um, important here was that in the post-Dirty War era, when survivors and members of leftist groups were organizing testimonies about um, you know, torture and surviving torture, um, gender-based torture was not uh, focused on specifically. Uh, so sexual-based violence as a specific form of torture in Argentina, for example, was not focused on in the human rights report. And it wasn't really its own human rights trial until 2012, right? So it was considered a form of torture on, on, included on the umbrella of torture. So there was not a focus on the kind of gendering of state violence that occurred. So this kind of is another erasure, right? And form of trauma of women and, and, other, and men as well who experienced sexual violence by the, by the state. Um, there was no acknowledgement of this kind of systematic form of, of torture, right, of gender-based torture used against uh, political dissidents. Um, so I think that this was um, something really, really fascinating to me, right? One of the final things I'll say here is that what I found really fascinating was that not all women I interviewed would agree with my findings here. I think what I was really curious to learn about the gender dynamics of leftist movements um, some of the women I interviewed did not really want to speak critically of the of the men or compañeros that were in their organizations, right? That they they felt it was more important to denounce the human rights crimes committed by the state, and this was more important than you know focusing on the gender dynamics within the organizations themselves. Um, so this really is an example of the kind of heterogeneity of the narratives I look at, um, and it is important to remember that you know, the women I interviewed, they were not a monolith. They all had their own perspectives and and ideas. And and it was really important to really think about the multiplicity of of their perspectives and, and experiences. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you. Uh, now, in a, the particularly intense third chapter, we discuss Garake Olimpo by the Chilean-Italian director Marco Becis. You describe cases of women who were labeled traitors to the revolutionary and leftist cause because they were seen to have colluded with the dictatorship through their sexuality. In fact, women were seen as grieving mothers in Argentina and little else. These portrayals, as you have shown, strip women of their agency. And you've tried to reenact in a way what happened in the prison cells of Buenos Cyrus and the infamous Esma with a dissonant present embodied in narratives and institutions who give a version of events freighted with self-interest, as you just said in your earlier uh, in, in, your, in response to the earlier question as well. Uh, tell us about this uh, the, the main protagonist of the third chapter, 
who gets labeled a traitor because she seemed to have sold out to the dictatorship. Thank you for that uh, question. You know, this this topic, this chapter um, on the gendered uh, betrayal is something that I found really fascinating, but also very troubling. Uh, and it was a really haunting deep dive that I did into one of the enduring legacies of women survivors of state violence in, in, in Argentina and Mexico. Um, I really find the, the politics of survival and survivor guilt to be uh, a really important and, and interesting topic. And there exists many attitudes, assumptions, criticisms uh, attached to various groups of survivors, but particularly women survivors of state violence. Um, you know, in a 2009 interview I had with Margarita Cruz, a survivor of, of, of the Argentinian repression in Tucumán, she said that, you know, nobody wanted to hear about what the desaparecidos experienced, right? Men or women, right? She explained that there was a sort of paradox between disappearance and, and reappearance, right? Desaparecido y los reaparecidos. Right? So she said that there's this, the action was placing blame on the victim and survivor, right? So she, um, the woman, Cruz, who I interviewed, um, after she came out of the detention center, she said that, you know, family members and other folks of disappeared didn't really want to know about what happened and that there was a sort of general consensus of, well, if you had reappeared, it was for some reason, right? So so there was a phrase in Argentina that said, por algo será, you know, that they were, people were disappeared for some reason, that they deserved, right? they're targeting and that if they were uh, reappeared, they were released from these camps. It was also for a reason, right? So there was a sort of double um, blaming um, and an, an assumption that not only did they deserve to be targeted by the regime, but that they had collaborated with the regime if they were released. Right? So there was such stigma and, and so much, so many layers in this sort of politics or survival. So I really became fascinated with this concept of uh, and the politics of survival, and especially this this concept of um, revolutionary morality that I look at in this chapter, that is really uh, the strict codes of conduct that um, some leftist organizations, particularly the armed organizations, followed, and how heteropatriarchal notions of propriety, uh, femininity, was integrated into a socialist ideology that was supposedly um, built on equality, right? And dismantling those uh, um, hierarchies of gender. So um, this this was something that I found really fascinating. And in, in a documentary film I watched called um, Montoneros by Andres Itela, 1994 documentary on the Argentinian um, armed organization, the Montoneros, um, the film interviews a former guerrilla uh, called Ana Testa. And she talks about her detention and torture in Argentina's infamous concentration camp, ESMA, which is the higher school of mechanics of the Navy. And she talks about how her husband, Juan Silva, was also a, a guerrero. He refused to see her once she was released from the camp. He said that she must have cooperated with the regime to secure her release. So she, she, he essentially dies believing that his own wife was a traitor to the revolutionary cause, right? And it's a really powerful, haunting moment of the documentary. And I and I just remember thinking, this is so fascinating. I really want to look more into this, right? So this this shows the kind of 
gendered, hetero, patriarchal, moral, social codes that were really a part of many leftist Latin American organizations, particularly guerrilla groups at the time. Um, so this, you know, in this and other examples in literature, film, cultural discourses, norms, um, was really riveting to me. And I, and I explore this kind of cultural legacy and the notion of, of a, a, a gendered betrayal um, and revolutionary moral, morality. Um, another example that we see this in, obviously, is in Garaje Olimpo, which is um, also loosely based on the um, history of, of um, Mercedes Lucy Carazo. This com- so she was a high-ranking Montonera guerrera in 1976 in Argentina, she was kidnapped and detained at the ESMA for two years. Um, she was eventually released in 1978 after she complied with military officers. And she also had a sexual relationship with Antonio Pernias, her former torturer, who also led the mission that resulted in the death of her own husband, uh, another guerrillero, Marcelo Corlat. So um, she eventually, Carazo eventually denounced Pernias and provided testimony against him in a human rights trial, which took place between 2012 and 2017. But, you know, despite her denunciation and participation in the trial, it's really the kind of scintillating and shocking nature of her sexual relationship with um, the the guard, Pernias, in the camp that really captivated the cultural imaginary of of many Argentinians. Her case really became the basis of of disgust and ire and condemnation in many cultural texts, such as Miguel Bonasso's Recuerdo de la Muerte and Liliana Ecker's 1996 novel called El Fin de la Historia. And this novel is loosely based on Carazo's life. Um, and so, it, you know, in a sense, there was a really imp- interesting pattern in some of the texts and testimonies that I saw that while male survivors could also be viewed as traitors, right, that they colluded with the regime, women survivors would be blamed or assumed to have used their bodies to garner freedom right, or release from captivity. So this was a particular kind of gender betrayal was perceived to be the most egregious type a betrayal, right? Using their bodies for that, for, for survival. Um, so many women survivors face this extra level of gendered scrutiny, whether they use their bodies or not, right? To survive that position them as sexual traitors for, for giving their bodies to the state, right? So this really was so fascinating because it, it, it alludes to the figure of, of La Malinche, right? So even though, um, she's originally a symbol of Mexican betrayal, right? Malinche's betrayer, She's now been codified in a transnational sense, right? She's come to embody this ultimate feminine betrayal in many Latin American cultural narratives. So I was really fascinated to see this concept of malinchismo in Argentina, right? So far away from Mexico. So this we see the sort of transnational um, traveling of these kinds of, of gendered betrayal, right? This notion of woman as betrayer. So really, um, fundamentally, this this really... This, this chapter is arguing that rather than centering on the motivation of the prisoners to engage in these kinds of relations, these relationships um, and the controversies they, they elicit reflect gendered social codes, right, that uh, existed in these leftist organizations, um, but were also the similar gendered social codes that authoritarian states uh, also upheld, right? Um, so in order to really challenge this narrative, the 
this particular chapter, I, I focus and end with um, the perspectives of women, right, who survived state-sanctioned sexual violence. So I, I give the space at the end of the chapter to allow politically militant women to differently narrate the concept concept of gender betrayal, right, to express their own accounts of resistance against these um, very strict uh, gendered moral codes. So I found that to be a really really fascinating concept. And I think there's so much more to be done, but I, I really found that to be very heavy, but also a really fascinating co- uh, topic. Uh, what were the alternative modes of storytelling that these women took recourse to? Uh, you've talked about oral narratives, that, and these contrasted with the state-controlled post-dictatorship narratives, right? So have oral histories revealed what the archive has left unsaid and served as a site of redress? How have they disrupted the linear structure of the archive? Can you explain to us? Yes, thank you. Um, yes, so, you know, the women's narratives in, that I examine in the book really challenge contemporary state narratives of progress right, and the attempt to shift away from past violence. Um, they really pose as, as kind of inconvenient reminders of, of the past. Right? So they disrupt the post dirty war era states um, in attempt to produce a very linear historical narrative based on progress. Um, so many women survivors of of state violence created these memory projects, right? Um, or produced testimonies, film, and other cultural productions that center their unique experiences based during that era. And again, to just to reiterate, it's it's also important to notice that these experiences were not heter- uh, homogeneous, right? That they all had very unique, differing at times, contradictory um, experiences that I found really really interesting. And so their alternative modes of storytelling, you know, these, these testimonies, cultural texts articulate new um, alternative modes of documenting the past. Uh, and they really remain persistently vocal in the face of systemic forms of silence and erasure um, and, and elision. And one really important component of this kind of alternative mode of storytelling I found to be really particularly arresting was um, in visual culture as well as testimonies. Um, so one of the uh, films I look at in one of the chapters is by Mexican director Luisa Riley. She produced a 2012 documentary film uh, called Flor en Otomi or Flower in Otomi. And it, it centers the life and death of Denny Prieto Stock, who was a 19-year-old member of the Mexican guerrilla, uh, urban, gr- urban guerrilla group, the National Liberation Forces. Um, and, I, and I look at this alongside the Argentinian collection of testimonies by writer Marta Diana in 1997 called Mujeres Guerrillas or Women Guerrillas, which compiles testimonies of former uh, women guerrillas and also includes her, the writer's own reflections on her personal connections to the women. And so these and other texts really center the silence narratives of these women, as well as the history of, of activists who were re- erased in contemporary neoliberal Argentina and Mexico. And this really reveals a kind of what I call a gendered haunting that emerges from this erasure, from state and masculinist discourses. So that is, you know, by not contending with this unresolved violence and gendered erasures from the past, that this has led to 
a generation of of specters, right? Who whose histories of revolutionary struggle continue to haunt contemporary Mexico and Argentina. So as much as the post-Dirty War contemporary neoliberal state wants to move beyond the past, it is impossible to do so. These kinds of texts con- constantly erupt and disrupt the neoliberal present, right? Because these are particularly um, historic traumas and gender traumas that have not been resolved, have not been contended with. So I think to me, that is what kind of the the beauty and power of cultural studies is that it evokes the sort of sense of loss and haunting that can sometimes not be um, captured in the official archive, right? The sense of loss, the gaps, the silences, the sighs that I, you know, um, that, that are relayed in the interviews. Uh, these are the kinds of um, forms of knowledge that I think escape the official archive. Um, <clears throat> another really important mode of feminist storytelling is in testimonial literature, right? There's a lot of scholarship specifically on Southern Cone testimonial literature. Um, one beautiful novel I look at is called um, A Single Numberless Death by Nora Stregilevich, I highly recommend, um, is a testimonial novel from 1997 that centers on the author's own memories of being a former disappeared victim of the dictatorship and also reflects on her, uh, of the legacies of the dictatorship on the present, on the on the national consciousness. And her, her novel is really kind of a disjointed testimony, right? It situates the narrative of the past repression in present-day Argentina. It disturbs the national discourse of progress, right? So it really, um, the kind of experimental form of the novel creates this quality that disrupts the temporally progressive linear format that the state has been trying to espouse, right? That this is a forward-looking um, project of a state, right? That we need to move beyond the past. So the past is in the past. People did bad things, and we are now in the in the present. Um, but these kinds of texts, these alternative modes of storytelling, really disrupt that intention. We're incessantly transported back and forth across various spatial temporal realms from past to present, and then sometimes a fusing of the past to the present. Um, and so this kind of literary cultural um, text technique challenges the transitional government's attempt to really work through and move beyond the trauma and state-sanctioned violence of the past, right? That these kinds of human rights trials are, yes, important for many survivors, but that uh, true justice has has yet to be accomplished, right? So those, those are some examples of the kind of alternative modes of, of storytelling. There's also a really um, important example from Mexico, where in 2002, activists and guerrilleras, academics formed the first national reunion of former um, guerrilleras in 2002. Uh, And in this conference, one of the former um, guerrilleras, Rosa Maria Gonzalez Carranza of the People's Union, she said, Um, In the history of war, we women are not visible. For that reason, it is important to approach this history with a new perspective. So I think this new perspective is really at the core of my book. You know, I focus on the heterogeneous, at times contradictory, historical memories of women survivors of state terror. And it's through these heterogeneous, um, tense gaps, contradictory narratives where a Latin American feminist 
um, knowledge is produced, like a new knowledge on this history. Um, and so I think it's really important to think about how these women's, women's words articulate and theorize new forms of knowledge. So essentially, you know, thinking about your question about have, um, what, has, what has the archive left unsaid? I think that I really like that question. You know, I think that um, my book considers all the things that are left unsaid and unrecorded. And for those of us who have approached official archives with some trepidation, right, uh, we know that, you know, we, we, we understand the importance of, of doing so. We, and it's important to think about and to ask, for example, who creates the archive? Who shapes how a country's history is officially documented and shared, right? Um, and so the disruptive archives here then sort of shape the narrative arc of the book and, and really challenge these dominant hegemonic forms of, of knowledge on, on the dirty wars. So um, these memories really require a kind of return to past trauma, right? And this repeated return to the past really disrupts the state's emphasis on progress and forward looking. Um, so the women's narrative really, these narratives really unsettle and these, these archives unsettle dominant dirty war era discourses and create new feminist knowledge, right? This new feminist knowledge that really combat systems of power, legacies of oblivion, and state-sanctioned impunity. And, and really, it is their narratives of loss and haunting, irresolution, the gaps and the tensions, right? Um, where I, I see a, a Latin American feminist theory of justice that comes out of this, right? This is one that really positions the women as protagonists of the history, as Margarita Cruz told us the, um, in my interview, you know, that, that they're protagonists, not victims of, their his, of this history. And it really attests to their very present survival and resistance, you know. And just to, to conclude, you know, um, one woman I interviewed in Rosario, Argentina in 2009, a survivor of the dictatorship, Lelia Ferrarese, she said to me, you know, sigue siendo presente esto. You know, this continues to be present. And so I think that, you know, as scholars, activists, folks interested in these topics, we really must um, tend to the haunting, yet really inspiring and beautiful words of these histories of gender resistance um, and, and the lucha and, and bravery that these women espouse. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're almost out of time. So I want to thank you, Dr. McManus, for revealing to a, a wider gaze the painful and intimate moments of those whose society and literature haven't always valued and of showing us the limitations of archives through the perspectives that are that cannot be found in them. Thank you so much for disrupting the archive and for spending time with us and telling us about your book. It's been a wonderful evening, and I'm sure students the world over will find material here which they haven't come across before. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for um, allowing the, uh, the voices and the narratives of the women interviewed to be spotlighted. I, I truly appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs>